Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH, 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. We start the show with feedback. We've moved it from the end of the show to the beginning of the show to try to encourage people to send in feedback and to make sure that we don't run out of time for it. So if you have questions, either follow-ups to past feedback, questions for me, uh, or topics you'd like to discuss, then we invite you to send those in live at asknoahshow.com. Coming shortly, we're going to try to re... Uh, we, we tried this early on, didn't quite work. I think we got some of the bugs worked out. We're going to try and do email live, so you'll be able to email the show during the show. See if that works uh, as well. Our first email today comes in from Stephen. Stephen writes in and says, Hi, Noah. What would you recommend for accessing a database from a website? The user access, not database management. I need to build a small database website that people can upload pictures and simple documents from a website front end. Roughly 30 to 50 people. I'm assuming some level of create a username and password, the ability to access their records. And of course, I will be hosting this on something like Linode, DigitalOcean, Bluehost, etc. I'm really open to any host provider. I've thought about Drupal, but I'm not sure if that's the best solution or not. It's for our local county fair group for kids to upload pictures and letters for their projects. And so it's not for profit. Any assistance would be great. I've done moderate amounts of DB interactions with Access, MySQL, SQL, Access Forms, uh, and Access SQL queries, and a minimal amount of web development, mainly from drag-and-drop website creators and WordPress. I'm excited to learn this project, but I have three small kids, so I'm also a little overwhelmed with the amount of time I would have to devote to figuring it out. But I know there's more than one way to solve the problem. Also, as a fellow church drummer, I did hear you mention your earphones when you play, but you didn't mention specific make and model. What do you use? We use all in-ears, but I currently have a cheap pair. They work okay. They don't harness the full range of sound spectrum frequency range. I do play a little bit of behind plexiglass blast shield for setup for reference. Thanks for your input, and I appreciate the show, Stephen. So uh, in, 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 if, if your question is about specifically about databases, I'm not the guy to ask because I'm not really much of a database guy. I dig into MaraDB when I have to. And uh, obviously, a lot of underlying services, uh, Nextcloud and OS Ticket, and, and, and a lot of things that we use, obviously rely on databases. And so, I have enough knowledge about how to, you know, properly maintain them and back them up. But I'm not the guy to tell you how to design a database. I can tell you what I would do if I woke up in your shoes, though, and I were trying to get a system set up for a county fair for kids to be able to upload documents and photos. I would use Nextcloud. It's a drop-in solution to what you're looking to do. And we use it at AltaSpeed Technologies all the time to do stuff like this. We use it for when we hire new people, for them to submit documents securely. Um, we use it to share contracts with clients and have them sign and send back. Uh, we use it for client documentation. When, you know, if we, we take on a remote client and says, hey, you know, we need photographs of this, that, and the other. And obviously, sometimes there are sensitive things in there. And that allows uh, the, the client or user, whoever, 
to self-register from a web UI. The web UI and the database all comes packaged into one, so all you really have to do is install NextCloud and maintain it. There's a plethora of different ways that you can host it or pay someone to host it for you. Uh, and it will do exactly what you need to do. You, you can even have a document that's automatically shared to all users by default and maybe has an instruction sheet and explains to them exactly how they uh, go about uploading things to where you want them to upload it. And then on the other side, you can have it automatically sync down to a PC. So, for example, we have a girl who works in the front office and she processes all of that, those kinds of things when clients send in photos or contracts or wherever, and then process them, puts them in whatever the appropriate end system for that, that information to be in. And we just have that all syncing over NextCloud. Uh, so that, that's probably how I would go about uh, solving that problem. And uh, I'll, I'll open it up if there is someone in the community. Oftentimes we get this, I think, probably once a week now, somebody responds to a previous question. So if there's somebody out there that says, hey, I know everything there is to know about databases, and this is the way that you do it. Here's how we did it at our county fair. Well, write in, live at asknoahshow.com. Help Stephen out. Uh, but Stephen, that's the way that I would do that. Uh, as for your in-ears question, 64 audio, I have looked at a number of different in-ear monitors. I, I suspect that they uh, make the best ones out there. They're based out of Washington. And uh, so it's American-based company. Or American, uh, based company. And they build all of these all of these things in house and are specifically designed for musicians. So big fan of, of 64 audio. It kind of feels like that's my audio interface to the rest of the world. And you know, again, for me, it's uh, it's a function of trying to keep the volume as low as possible, but be as clear as possible. And I think 64 audio probably does that better than any other company out there. But that's just my opinion. Our second email comes in from Ricky. Ricky writes in and says, "Greetings, Noah." I've been listening to your show for a while and figured I would finally write in and join the conversation. Last week, a listener wrote in about the TP-Link Omada. It's an alternative to Ubiquity wireless access points. And I want to bring to your attention another alternative from Grandscreen. Their GWN 7600 series seemed to pack a massive punch for the money. Most users, most can act as a controller, keeping that on the local network or set up a cloud account on a computer to run the controller software, depending on your needs. I don't personally have any experience with them, but they're on my radar for a future purpose. Thanks for all you do, Ricky. So I took a look at these and like Ricky, they wound up on a list of this is something I would like to experiment with more. One of the problems that I have uh, in moving away from Unify is that, quite frankly, they do what they do very well. And there aren't a lot of alternatives that do what Unify does very well. Um, there are other alternatives, but they're typically more expensive. They're things like Ruckus. Um, and so you can do, you can, you, I, I'm aware that there are these other options that exist. Um, I haven't really worked up the courage to go put them inside of a production environment. I have a couple, couple different uh, models of, of access points that we run in the lab just to kind of see how they work. But I've not really worked up the courage to actually go and do a deployment. This might be the first one that I could I could see doing that, and partly because of the way that this is set up. So from their website, quote, the GWN7600 uses a controllerless distributed network management design in which the controller is, in fact, embedded within the product's web user interface. And, of course, this allows the access point to then manage a network of up to 30 GWN7600 access points independently without needing a separate controller. So we, this is a common scenario for us. This happens all the time. You get a hotel, they'll say, hey, we have a small little 30, 40 room hotel. We want Wi-Fi. Our franchise requires us to have a managed contract with a provider. Um, so we want you to come in and typically the way that's priced is you know, a certain dollar per hotel room. Now they're not paying for the hardware. 
in that scenario. In that scenario, we pay for the hardware. It's our hardware. We own it. We just install it. We bill them a flat fee per month per room, and then they use our hardware. When their guests have issues, we have little tents we put in the room. They call the 1-800 number. Uh, technician walks them through. Hey, restart. Do all the lights, the things. Okay, didn't work. Send somebody out. Um, and so in those environments, especially in those smaller hotels, typically you're dealing with you know maybe 5-10 access points. Well, in a 5-10 access point world today, um, that's typically because they're not paying for the hardware and because they don't need any advanced routing function. Uh, typically that's not where we're putting like, uh, you know, an SG 3100 NetGate appliance, right? It's usually a, a, a substantially less expensive router. And the idea there is all it has to do is hand an IP address out and be able to handle the traffic getting back out to the internet. And that's basically it. And the USGs do a pretty good job of that. Um, both the USG pro and the, the, and the little USG. And there's a handful of other manufacturers that we've tried and used with, with varying degrees of success. Um, this is exciting to me because even though it doesn't have a dedicated controller, uh, it, oftentimes that wouldn't be necessary. Oftentimes, uh, especially in those environments that, that I've, I've just got done, got done explaining, a lot of times all you need is the ability to connect to Wi-Fi and get onto the internet. And this system is going to allow you to do that up to 30 access points. That covers a pretty large uh, installation. And so I've, I've added these to my list. I will check these out, and I appreciate, Ricky, for, for you writing in. The other thing that I like, in fact, I almost like it more than, than, than Unify from this one aspect, there's not a single point of failure. My understanding after reading the documentation on these is if, if any one of the devices fail, uh, the other devices, because it's a distributed network design, they all have picked up that configuration and can stand in as the new controller. Um, so they kind of elect one. So this is really cool. I, I, I really like this product. I, I, uh, I'd be lying if I said I had a, a high uh, opinion or expectation of Grandstream. I've always kind of seen them as budget devices. Although that said, we've had a couple of cordless telephones and we've had a couple of ATAs from them. And they've all seemed to function without problem. So uh, I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to giving one of their access points a try. It does come with decent reviews and at under $100 from Amazon. Definitely, if you're looking for something for your house or something for a small office, this would this would this would be high on the list. Um, but like I say, the the real test would be putting it inside of something like a hotel where it's just going to get hammered and see how it fares, and that might happen. Our third email comes in from Augustine. Augustine writes in and says, "Hello, Noah. Thanks for all the great shows. First, let me tell you that I'm not a security expert. However, I've heard multiple times that standalone access control systems are a bad idea." For the standalone access control systems, I refer to those in where the unit on the outside collects the credentials, verifies it, and also signals the door to open. I haven't handled the 4045 CGNU0 myself, but I found the manual online. And as far as I can deduce from the documentation, there are two possible attacks. First, the normally open egress switch. The base unit doesn't have a tamper switch, and it's provided as an add-on. It also has the possibility to wire an egress button to open the door from the inside. And this is connected via a normally open contact. The problem is, without the tamper switch, an attacker could literally just unscrew the unit and short the contacts for the egress and open the door. Even if a tamper switch is installed, it sometimes can be bypassed. To see videos of these kinds of attacks, you can check out, and then he gives links. For this kind of attack, you don't need any special tools, just a screwdriver, maybe a paperclip. Activate the relay with a magnet to open the door 
the access control system uses a relay. This relay is activated using an electromagnet. When the magnet is on, it opens the circuit and the door is opened. However, it can also be activated using a magnet put in the correct place. To check the correct place, we can read the wiring diagram on the manual to see examples of this attack. So you can also watch these videos. Um, so, and then he goes on to say, I hope this serves as a PSA for the community since you probably know a couple of people that can test this out. Best regards, Augustine. So, um, I, I guess I'll start here. So, uh, I appreciate all this information. This is fantastic. Um, essentially the way, the way I would answer that is this, if you're trying to secure the NSA or the white house or a large corporation that has secrets, a police station, anything where security is, is actually paramount, then by all means, you should actually be using things like the latest MyFair cards or uh, HID CIOs. All of these have actual cryptography built into them. They have a public and private key pair and the communication line between the reader and the controller I guess let me back up for a second. So there are three components to any access control system. There is the reader, there is the controller, and then there's the uh, door locking hardware. Uh, and so if we separate those for just a minute, the reader and the controller, um, the, in, in, in an all-in-one unit, obviously the reader and the controller are all one. In a distributed system or in a managed system, the reader and the controller are separate. And there are a, another whole host of attacks that you can that you can do on a reader to try to trick it into thinking that you've presented valid credentials and trick the controller into locking, uh, unlocking the door. So just separating them isn't enough. We we have to go even further than that. And just not just removing the ability to to access the door locking uh, wiring harness is still not enough um, because there's even ways around that. So yeah, if security is paramount, then you need MiFi or excuse me, MyFair or HID CIOs or something like that that has actual cryptography. And then this is important that the line between the reader and the controller is encrypted, and that will prevent something known as a replay attack. And where I wait for somebody to present a valid credential, I just record that and then play it back through the same wires of the reader and trick the controller into thinking that that credential has been has been presented a second time. And so if you put place the controller on the egress side and secure it. And encrypt the the communication line between the reader and the controller, and you harden the 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 uh, the wire. You well, you use a a fail secure lock, and then that line is run only from the controller down to the locking hardware on the egress side of the door. Now you're about as secure as you can get. At least you're as secure as a regular lock would be because you'd have to first get through the door before you could access any of the critical components. The only thing that sits on the outside uh, part of the door is a reader, and that reader uh, requires a, a public-private key pair and is sent encrypted back to the controller. If you do that, then that lock, I would, I would tell a client, if you were one, that that lock is as secure as a regular uh, uh, tumbler key lock. Uh, in fact, more secure because it, the, the key cannot be duplicated and because access is highly controlled aside from that though aside from that uh ideally if you're working in that kind of environment chances are you're not just trusting a computer to deal with your security at that point you probably have security cameras you've probably tied security cameras to those individual locations and you're using something like genetech software to tie the camera and the reader 
all to one. So there's one access control point. And then you, again, in an ideal world, you have a human being watching people use those credentials or monitoring and making sure that, you know, if credential is only used in, in one location at one time, that the person that you expect when they swipe the key, their photo ID pops up on the Genetech system. And you're comparing that to the camera and making sure that the people that, that claim to be, that are using their own IDs and all, all of those kinds of things. And then in enhanced security scenarios, evidence lockers and police and, uh, if you have uh, narcotics that are being stored either in a, in a pharmacy or something like that, then typically you're also using something like two-factor authentication. And so you're using not only a, a prox card that allows you to authenticate, but you're also pairing that with something like a pin or a thumbprint or a photo or something or a, a face recognition, something like that. 95% of businesses, though, and churches and small shops and my garage door, which is where I was talking about that that all-in-one unit, those places, um, the lock is really there to keep the honest people honest. The amount of times that I've walked up to a business, and we have this conversation, right? They ask, you know, how secure is it? And I will be honest with you. Here's where the here's here's what you would need to spend, and here's how you need to do it if you want it to be more secure than a traditional lock. And then here's realistic. And realistic is if you have a store that has two gigantic glass doors, and the entire wall is one gigantic pane of glass. It's far, you're right, you could take a screwdriver and you could loosen the, you could, you could, if you'd had a security driver, you could take the security bit out and then you could take the thing off the wall and then you could download the wiring manual and you could find the wires and you could clip those and then you could short the right two together and you could provide 12, you know, either 12 volt power to the striker, you could remove 12 volt power if it's a maglock, whatever, and you could actuate the door. Absolutely could do that. You could also just grab a brick and throw it through the window and that will take significantly less time. Uh, and if you're trying to break into the building, you're probably not bothering with the wiring diagram and all of that. You're just breaking through the, the big glass doors, right? And so the, the, the short version of the story there is that locks are there to keep the honest people honest. Most locks are. Um, the original prox card, the 125 kilohertz prox card that came out, that is used by HID and, and many others, they came out in the late 80s or 90s. So they've, we've had 10, 20 years of hacking on these things to find ways around it. And we've done that. Um, the, uh, the, uh, you can duplicate those keys. You can buy a, a key duplicator on Amazon for like 29 bucks. And so all you have to do is find somebody that has a valid key or just wait by the door. Um, you can, some of those readers can actually read far, uh, further out than the, than the regular wall mounted reader can. So you can get 30, 40 feet away. Kevin Mitnick actually did a presentation six, seven years ago in where he started cloning people's prox cards in the audience and, uh, and then opening locks with them. So, so they're not a, a secure technology, uh, when you hold it to that standard. However, the threat vector of an employee sneaking back into the building after they're fired to either steal something or vandalize something or make a duplicate of the key and hand it to their buddy or whatever it is, that threat vector is much higher and happens much more often than people coming back and taking apart the readers to try to hack into the building. That's not as common. Um, and so what, uh, you know, the it's, it's you're, you're balancing security and convenience at that point, the convenience of being able to have a computer system where you can turn people's access on and off, where you can walk up to the door and just swipe a card and the door opens, you're balancing that with, with the security aspects. And you have to understand what your threat vector is. And 
If somebody executes, what's the what's the worst thing that happens? Um, and so if you have a building that would otherwise be secured and that's your weakest link, then by all means, um, there is technology. We've advanced technology in the last 30 years. It's certainly out there. It just costs a lot of money. The advantage of that single unit is if you have a sh- like in my case, I have a shed in my backyard where I keep my garden equipment and it becomes it's frustrating that every time I need to go mow the lawn, I get home from work where I've swiped in and out of. Uh, you know, our office building and I've swiped in and out of clients all day. And it's the same thing that's either on my wrist or hanging off of my ID badge. And I come home and I got to go hunt around for the keys to the shed. It's kind of nice just to be able to walk out there and take the same badge I use everywhere else and swipe it for 250 bucks. That shed door opens up now. When we did the original testing on the PXL 500, one of the first things I did, I was like, I wonder how this thing works. And so we actually, we keyed up on a single sideband transceiver on three megahertz. And I was able to overload that MS 3000 reader and the door opened. Um, so it's it's not that everything that you've sent in is is absolutely accurate and and it's good to know. So if there's somebody out there that thought that oh this is a much more secure way than having like a deadbolt on a door, it's not. Um, in fact, arguably even with proper access control, even if you had a distributed system and you were using OSDP to encrypt the line from the reader back to the controller and all of that, you're still stuck on the fact that if you've got a you know a three quarter inch uh, throw on your strike that's the that's the point of friction that that you know, is holding the door shut you know which is not going to be anywhere near like a proper deadbolt um so even there you're still probably better off with a physical lock if again if you're really concentrated on keeping that uh that door as secure as possible and uh, lastly i put that lock there for your protection not mine Our fourth email comes in from John. John writes in and says, Hi, Noah. I'm a longtime listener and first-time responder. On episode 230, a question was asked about scanners and multi-document feeds. I do this all the time on Linux. I have an HP OfficeJet Pro 8020 multifunction printer with an auto-document feeder. I use the driver supplied by the HP LIP, that's known as the HP Linux and Imaging and Printing, and we use the Xzane as the scanner software. Xzane enables you to select the flatbed or auto-document feed. One thing that is necessary is that you must enter how many sheets you are scanning. You can't just put an unknown stack into the feeder and have Xzane count them. It works great for me when I'm scanning multiple documents. As a side note, I do use the network capability of the printer rather than just USB or Wi-Fi. Love the show, John. So that's great advice. And HP LIP really does not get enough credit. Um, HP has gone through the extraordinary task of open sourcing uh, their IEP drivers for JetDirect and being able to interface with HP printers. And what that means, and this is not an exaggeration, you can talk to any HP JetDirect printer ever made through the HP LIP driver. And if you want proof of that, it so happens that this week we were at an audiologist's office and they were putting in a new device called a CogniView Thrive. And we'll have a link for you in the show notes if you'd like to read more about the device. But essentially, it's a device that allows you to, uh, that allows you to diagnose uh, Alzheimer's and other sorts of cognitive impairment. Um, and so we called the support company and said, hey, we need to add this printer. And they said, well, any HP printer will work. And I'm like... That's an interesting supported list. Any HP printer ever. Okay, well, so they go and purchase an HP printer and hand it to us and say, oh, make it work. So we sit down at the CogniView, and I go to log in, and I click on the wireless network, and I'm like, that menu looks suspiciously familiar. It looks very Unity-like. 
Sure enough, it's running Ubuntu underneath. Sure enough, it's running the HP LIP driver, which is how Cognivue is able to say that we support every HP, every network HP printer out there. And so, uh, yeah, this this five minute self administered computerized test, uh, it basically folds up into like a little laptop thing, um, but is running Linux underneath and runs their software then on top of it. And the way that they're able to seamlessly integrate with HP drivers is largely thanks to the open source work that HP has done on their printers. So HP LIP driver, you should you should definitely check out if you if you're looking for a printer. Um, you'd be hard pressed to get something better than HP, both in terms of print quality, uh, printer quality, as well as compatibility with Linux. 1-855-450-NOAH, that's 855-450-6624, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. Jacob calls from Grand Forks. Hey, Jacob, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, it's good to talk to you again. So Same. I live in a, an apartment here in town, and um, I own some items, legal items that are very unpopular these days, and uh, uh, I do what I can to... Uh, to uh, transport them in and out of my apartment as covertly as I possibly can. But uh, anyways, with those sensitive items in my apartment, uh, I'm kind of concerned about um, uh, people gaining access, un unwanted access to my apartment. And I'm thinking about putting up some, some cameras in the apartment, and I want to hook them up to some sort of UPS. And I don't want to go the traditional UPS method uh, in case – power does get dropped to the apartment, you know, the, the UPSs start beeping, uh, alerting, you know, anybody who's in the apartment who has cut power to the apartment that there's UPSs around. Mm -hmm. So I guess I was just wondering, is there some sort of UPS solution out there where when power gets cut, you know, it, the thing doesn't start beeping? Um, so there's a couple of things. So there is a, there's, there's a couple of medical institutions that we've literally, uh, and this might sound like too much of a hack for you, but we've literally gone in and just chopped, uh, disconnected the speaker, uh, inside of the UPS because they had the same concern. They said, Hey, when it goes out, we, we can't have, uh, we, we, we just, we can't have the alarm going off. So when, when that dies, we just need you to, we, we, just, we want the UPS, but we don't want the beep. So that's, that's one option. The "Quote unquote professional answer: the the right way to do that um, is to use a dedicated power supply with its own battery backup, um, and uh, that would be something like uh, an Eltronics. And I'm I I just looked quickly to see if I could find exactly how how we would do this. Um, it looks like there is uh, there is one device called the Netway SP1BTWP, and I'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. But essentially what Altronics makes are uh, low-volt power supplies. Typically, this is what's used in uh, cameras uh, to, to power them. They, we use them all the time in access control to, to power the doors and, and stuff like that. Um, uh, and, and, and so typically they're... They're distributing like 12 volt power, but I just looked and they do have units that support PoE as well. So the advantage to the Altronics is they, first of all, unlike a UPS, in where they have very specific batteries that are specific to that manufacturer's brand, Altronics um, are going to use any 12 volt battery. And so you can go to Batteries Plus and purchase one. You could wire up a car battery if you wanted to. It uh, doesn't matter. 
secondly, they don't have alarms. Uh, it just silently fails over to the battery backup. And third, they're specifically designed with security in mind. So, for example, they include things like a set of contacts that can silent, silently trip if power's lost. So you could, for example, tie that back to like an Arduino or Raspberry Pi to shoot you an email and saying, hey, power was lost in your apartment. And you're now running on battery backup, and we estimate that you have, you know, X amount of hours before uh, the the battery dies and and you lose your cameras. Um, and that would that would give you a notification, and then nobody else inside of the apartment would have any idea that even exists, let alone where to find it, let alone what it is, let alone what it's doing. Perfect. I'll I'll check it out. All righty. If there's anything else I can do, give me a call back. one 450 no it's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Our pick of the week is Natron, a powerful GUI-based uh, editor. Now, actually, editor really isn't quite, isn't really quite the right word because it's, it, uh, it's really, uh, it's really more of, uh, I can't think of the word, but uh, it's designed for doing animation. And so Natron came out uh, a few years back and, and we had looked at it. And originally when it had come out, my interest in it at that time was that it was a video editor that was available on Linux. Um, as time has progressed, Natron has really established itself as compositing, as really good compositing software uh, that works right out of the box and has ties to a bunch of other software, things like Blender and other open source projects. Um, Natron has a powerful GUI interface and a flexitive, flexive intuitive, multi-platform node-based engine. And I, I had to play with it a little bit to really understand the concept of this node-based engine, but essentially... You can do things like, here's an image. I want you to read from this image. I want you to take out this part of the image. I want you to modify this image. Natron then has a flexible roto and roto paint tool set that can generate an unlimited amount of layers, masks, mats, shapes. Natron has a powerful 2D and planar tracker to help reduce hours of rotoscoping and meet the, the deadlines for personal or client needs. They support a plethora of tools from the open source community uh, that have developed a series of plugins that you can use with Natron. Their motto, back it, hack it, push it, pull it. Open source community standards are always with you. Natron trusts in the open source community. The collective effort from artists, developers, research are all combined into one application to make the difference. A huge collection of well-maintained and ever-increasing plugins can be found on the official community plugins repository of Natron. So if you're interested in video editing and doing CGI and those kinds of things, um, compositing their, their, uh, their trailer video gives you a really decent demonstration on, on, the, on the power and flexibility of Natron. And so they, they animate things like a spaceship uh, and they take a, just a static image of a spaceship and add all of the necessary effects to make the wind blow around and make it look like it's landing and make it look like it's taking off. When they got done, not all of their demo videos are things that I would look at and say, oh, I would mistake that for Hollywood. But certainly a couple of them I looked at and I'm like, dang, that looks just as good as I would see in a mainstream movie. That's fantastic. And it's a completely open source editor. And they've been around for a while. I, I, I was I looked to see if I could read in one of the early things that Natron was working on um, was it was distributed rendering. And I was looking to see if that had progressed much. I couldn't find much on it. But if you want to check out a, a, a very powerful video compositor, I'd highly check, recommend checking out Natron. Natron. 
In the news this week, Inkscape 1.1 has been released. Inkscape is uh, one of our favorite graphic design tools, um, and they've made a number of improvements. So it starts with the welcome dialog. And the welcome dialog walks you through customizing your instance of Inkscape to make sure that you're choosing things like the size of the document that you want to create, the canvas colors, the color modes, the keyboard shortcut styles, and the theme sets. Now, if you've never used Inkscape before, it's a SVG editor. And what a scalable vector graphic is, is essentially, instead of how you would, if, you, if I took a picture, if I took a piece of paper, and I drew a certain, I drew a box, and the box is one inch by one inch, and I scanned that box into, the, into a computer, and I began to enlarge that box, if I, if I artificially started to enlarge it, what you would notice is the larger the, the box gets, eventually we would hit the resolution limit of the scanner, and you would start to see a fuzziness or pixelation along the borders of the box, because there's only so many dots there, and we can only magnify them so much before they start to get blurry. Vector graphics work in a different way. When I make a box in a vector graphic, essentially I'm mathematically telling the computer, it's probably a terrible way to explain it, and the graphic designers are going to get on me, but is essentially telling the computer mathematically this many dots across and this many dots down and this many dots filled in, that's what I want for my box. So when I go back later on and say, now I want to make the box bigger, it doesn't matter if I magnify it times 100 or 1,000 or a million. I can start and make a, a drawing uh, a, uh, uh, the size of an icon, and then I can blow it up to the size of the Empire State Building, and I can export it as a massive image, and we could print it off, and you would see absolutely no quality loss whatsoever. And so, as you might imagine, uh, vector graphics are very, very popular. In fact, they're the industry standard for doing things like graphic design. And so when you see logos and when you see things on T-shirts and, and so on and so forth, a lot of those are done with scalable vector graphics. Um, when we work in industry, uh, obviously we all use internal open source software. And so we only work with vendors that will work with our software. One of the things that I've been, I've been exceptionally impressed about Inkscape is it's almost a one-to-one, -one, uh, exchange with uh, Adobe Illustrator. So we work with people all the time at graphic design shops with other companies that have logos all the, all the time that, that use Adobe Illustrator and they send us their Adobe Illustrator files and they open flawlessly in Inkscape. Once in a blue moon, there'll be some artifact that didn't quite import right or something like that. And it's usually a trivial fix. Uh, and so it's, it's one of the few pieces of open source software that out of the gate can deliver you the same functionality and same feature set that you would get with the proprietary alternative. And because of that, I, I live inside of Inkscape anytime uh, we're designing something or, or drawing something because even for things like network maps, even for things like uh, documentation, client documentation, it just makes more sense to start with an SVG. We can export it to a PNG and then put it into a document and put it on letterhead or whatever it is we have to do. But if we ever need to go back and modify those files, they're all individual pieces that I can... I can crawl in and modify. And additionally, when you want to go and combine stuff, so for example, you draw a logo on day one, and day 10, you draw a banner for something else, and then on day 16, you need to combine those two. You can just import both of those SVGs, combine them together uh, as groups, and then you can drag them around like they were two different objects, and all the transparency and all the things just work. So don't have enough 
good things to say about Inkscape, but if you're going to be if you're going to be doing any sort of graphic design, uh, you definitely want to get familiar with this piece of software. So, version 1.1, what have they improved? The command palette feature allows you to search through the various functions without relying on menus or keyboard shortcuts. Now, if you've used Inkscape for any prolonged period of time, then you've probably already memorized the keyboard shortcuts for the tools that you use. But there are so many tools and so many filters and so many things, effects and all the things that you can apply that the ability to search is fantastic. Additionally, they allow you to search for settings in their newly integrated search bar, which I think is fantastic. The dialog docking system now lets you dock dialog boxes on either side of your workspace as tabs, and they'll automatically turn them into icons when there are several tabs, or you can click on the little button that says, and I, I'm not making this up, Iconify, and it will turn those menus into uh, tiny little icons. Once you've learned what the icon translates to, you don't need to necessarily see the word, and it's much more efficient and clean to just have the little button there. The overlay outline mode is uh, something that comes in handy when you're working with drawings that have multiple layers. And so that adds support for exporting to JPEG and WebP, TIFF, and or optimized PNG. I'll take a moment here to say that oftentimes what we'll do if we have a, a graphic artist come in and we need them to draw something or we need something drawn from hand or marked up by hand or whatever it is, they'll do that in something like Krita. In Krita, then you can export individual a assets and import those as SVGs or put them into the document. And then again, you can resize them and, and modify them as if they were drawn in Inkscape to begin with. Uh, and so the interoperability with other open source software is fantastic. The calligraphy tool, which now updates connection lines in real time, the node tool uh, that now lets you copy, cut, and paste a selection of nodes. Uh, if you're not familiar with a node tool, essentially, oftentimes you'll have, like, let's say you take a picture of a person and the person is in a room. And so in the room, you have the wall of the room, the floor of the room, the ceiling of the room, maybe a chair in the room, and maybe there's a door in the background. Okay. All I want is the person because I'm going to put that person in my, in my SVG, whatever thing that I'm drawing. Uh, the node tool will allow you to select out an individual part, like a person or an individual object. And then you can pull that in to Inkscape. Uh, and so this allows you to copy uh, that selection of nodes. Additionally, the pen and pencil tool, which now features a new scale option for setting the width of the path, as well as the lasso rubber band selection tool, which now features a new selection mode that can help you with almost every object in the box. So my plea to you would be this. If you don't, if you've never used uh, Inkscape before, and maybe you're saying to yourself, you know what, Noah, I'm not a graphics person. I just, I, I either hire that out or I farm it out to a company or I have a person that does it for me. I'm just not artistic. I'm not creative. Give Inkscape a shot. You'd be surprised at what you can bang out by just having circles and squares and, and other things. And when you can combine them and let your, let your mind be creative and let that tool uh, produce a, 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 a product for you. I think you'd be surprised at how far you can get. The other thing is I would also encourage you to check out the extensions because there's so many things that you can do. I, we, uh, a while back, uh, we took a picture of Alan Jude and we copied that picture into Inkscape and used the extension tool to make a SVG of Alan. And so it traced him and it, and it traces, you can trace any bitmap, uh, but we traced his picture and we made a computerized version of him. And once we had a computerized version of him, then we could change the color and we could add it into other things. And I think they made a t-shirt out of it. So all of those things are possible. Again, 
uh, open source software right out of the box. You don't have to know what you're doing. You literally just have to go up to the extensions lab and click trace bitmap and it would do the work for you. And so I, uh, we had a, we had another situation. We were marking up one of our service vehicles. And so part of that process is it goes into the graphic designers and they come up with whatever the current logo and color set and all that is. And then they put vinyl over the, the, the vehicle and all that. While we were going through to design that, uh, one of the graphic designers said, hey, what would be really great is if we could have a picture of the vehicle and we could convert that to an SVG and then we can mark it up inside of Inkscape. And so that's what they did. They took a picture of the vehicle. They marked it up as an SVG and then just pulled out those SV- the, 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 um, the labeling for the UltraSpeed technologies and the logo and all the things and just printed those on vinyl and then voila, they fit perfectly onto the vehicle because we had custom designed it around the vehicle a photo of the vehicle that had been bitmap traced. So lots of powerful creative ways that you can, uh, that you can use uh, Inkscape. Again, even if you're not a person who does a lot of designing, I think there's something in Inkscape for you. So I'd highly recommend you check out Inkscape 1.1 and congratulations for a, a truly excellent piece of software. Google has been making the news lately uh, with Google IO. One of the things to come out of Google IO is Chromebook Linux apps are coming out of beta as of Chrome OS 91. So a quick recap, uh, Chrome OS, the device or the operating system that runs on Chromebook, which I believe is just based on Gen 2 and then has essentially a Chrome browser running um, because it's Linux underneath. A lot of people early on were, uh, using Crouton and, and, and Christini to either dual boot Linux and Chrome OS or run, uh, Linux apps inside of Chrome OS. And, uh, as the beta came out for that, we were, people have been actually able to run those Linux apps in Chrome. I talked a little bit about that last week. Um, but what they what Google is really trying to do here is reach an audience of developers with IDEs. And I can only imagine that Google looks around their facility sometimes and goes, why are all these people running Chrome or uh, running MacBooks? Oh, right. Because they can't get their programming IDE on a Chromebook. And so they have to do that. Well, it turns out a lot of that software is available for Linux anyway. And so just by including the ability to install that software on the Chromebook, uh, you open yourself up to a whole new host of potential users. Additionally, the hardware for the Chromebooks themselves is getting really, really good. There was a time where Chromebooks were seen as $100, $200 piece of junk subsidized hardware that could basically run Chrome. And to an extent, there's a large majority of Chromebooks that are deployed that are exactly that, uh, to include the ones that my kid's school has. However, there are there is a growing line of premium Chromebooks. And while it wouldn't necessarily be the device for me, I can understand how a company or how an individual might look at something and say, you know what? This is a way for me to get away from the telemetrics of Microsoft Windows. It's a way for me to not buy into the huge price point of Apple. And instead, it offers me the flexibility to use uh, native Linux apps on my Chromebook uh, that is supported out of the box from from the manufacturer. And then on top of that, uh, I have the ability to run Android. And that's another thing that came out of here is that they're going to increase the optimization of Android apps uh, with an all new dark theme. Android 11 will update to see Android move to a virtual machine rather than the current uh, container based method, making it easier to update in the future. My understanding is both Android apps and uh, Linux apps will both be available has uh, on, on Chrome OS 91. Uh, in fact, some of them are available on Chrome OS 90. Uh, Android 11 is available on, on, on select Chromebooks on Chrome OS 90, but uh, it will be available, to my understanding, on 
all Chromebooks as of uh, Chrome OS 91. And so you can see what's happening here, right? You can see that the industry is making a gigantic push towards mobile, not because I don't think the industry cares, but because individuals are much more comfortable walking into their cell phone provider and getting a phone and then coming back, downloading the apps that they need to do their job or get their thing done. And then they just live off of that device. So what happens when you want to get real work done? You want to go back to a laptop? Well, now you're back to the the, the the crazy circle of, well, I have to have a Windows computer, I have to have this, and all the apps are different, and nothing, you know, nothing works the way I want it to, and now I have to involve my corporate IT. All of that kind of goes out the window when you come back to something like a Chromebook, because essentially... Uh, the way that these are it can function in three different modes. It can function in the Chromebook mode. It can function in the Linux laptop mode, or it can function in the I'm an Android device mode. And because there's support from Google for all three of those, there's a tremendous amount of flexibility and potential here. Am I upset that this is coming from Google, or is that really the is that the is that the company I would really want to bank on for 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 the, my computing needs going forward? Absolutely not. Um, but it but at the same time. This is, this, is, this is what Linux looks like coming to the masses. Whether we like it or not, this is what Linux looks like. It takes a large company that says, okay, what do people want? And usually what people want is going to be slightly different than what open source, I don't want to use the term elitists, but visionaries, we'll say, uh, would say is an ideal way to, to deploy and introduce people to open source software. Uh, it's a cost-effective way for people to walk in and walk out of a, of a, of a big-box store with a device capable of running Linux apps. And the, the thing that I want to drive home more than anything else is I think this is ultimately a good thing for us because what this is going to mean is when Inkscape releases, Inkscape 1.1, and there are these exciting new features and somebody wants to try it, now the person who has never heard about Linux, didn't care about open source, never didn't care about any of that stuff, and they were Googling uh, ways to draw things online using some stupid browser-based uh, app on, on some stupid site uh, filled with advertisements that does a mediocre job at best, now that person has access to actual graphic design software and that graphic design software doesn't cost them anything that graphic design software can run on a full linux pc if they ever need it to it'll run on their mac it'll run on their windows computer so it's a good on-ramp for people to kind of explore technology and be able to explore software and be able to learn about things and do that on either subsidized hardware very inexpensive hardware or premium hardware if they have the uh, if they have the budget to do so so Chrome OS 91, you'll want to make sure to keep an eye on that. And if you have a Chromebook, you'll want to make sure to update it to that. Um, very exciting stuff to see that native Linux apps are going to be available on Chrome OS. Sublime Text 4 is out. Sublime Text has is is a, is decidedly a staple of my life. Uh, there are a couple of pieces of software I install right off the bat when I, when I get my computer uh, up and running, and Sublime Text is darn near the top of that list. Uh, off the bat, if you've not used Sublime Text, it's primarily designed as a code editor uh, for programmers, but really what it is is like the best notepad you've ever used in your life. A um, couple of reasons for that. First of all, it never, ever, and I mean ever, loses data. Uh, if it crashes... If the computer crashes, if my battery dies, all whatever, the last character I typed is still there when I open back up. All of the tabs that I had open in Sublime Text are there when I open back up. It just doesn't get any better. And with Sublime Text 4, they now offer 64-bit ARM, Linux, and Apple M1 support. Um, they've also introduced a feature in where you can view tabbed files side-by-side side using the tab multi-select feature. Uh, and that has been plumbed throughout the UI. So, for example... Just control and click on two tabs 
in the tab strip on two project files in the sidebar to instantly see a side-by-side view of them. They've also done work on the autocomplete engine, which has been entirely rewritten to provide context-aware autocomplete uh, suggestions based on the existing code within your project. So this is one of those things when you first when you first open up a, a document, you can save it as I'm writing Python or, or, or C or whatever, and it will try to recognize the syntax. And it'll do a couple things there. First of all, it'll do syntax highlighting. So It'll color, you know, your variables one color and the and the the actual arguments a different color and those kinds of things. But now it will autocomplete uh, based on the code that you're writing, which I think is really cool. Uh, they also have a default and adaptive themes in Sublime Text 4. And so this is going to natively integrate into your operating system's themes if it's supported and it is under Linux. Uh, and so it automatically detects dark mode and auto detection, all those kinds of things. And lastly, they have support for text drag and drop, uh, the support for Wayland, support for touchscreens, copy and paste to and from apps, which don't support UTF-8 text. The app also uses vSync for animations instead of fixed 60 hertz. So if you're looking for a new IDE, or if you just want, like I say, the best notepad you've ever used in your life, check out Sublime Text, Sublime Text 4 specifically. I will mention that Sublime Text is not open source software. While it does run flawlessly on Linux, and it is a staple, I use it all the time, I love it, uh, it is not an, uh, it's not an open source piece of software. So just be aware of that. Um, there is a nag screen. I feel necessary to tell people this. If I introduce people to Sublime Text, they usually I hear back. Uh, there's an egg screen that pops up and asks you to purchase or or, or support uh, Sublime Text. Um, you may or may not be able to eliminate that by just uh, creating a DNS entry in your host's file for Sublime Text uh, so that it can't reach the server to, to give you that egg screen if that's something that you wanted to do. The Beaker browser, this is something I came across today, is an experimental peer-to-peer web browser. So this is really neat. I was playing with this a little bit. Essentially, the idea is it's a web browser that can both create and view content from other people using the Beaker browser. And so you, you create things called hyperdrives. And a hyperdrive has its own URL. And once you've created a hyperdrive, then you can write HTML code just like you would expect to be able to. And you can share that hyperdrive URL with someone else. That other person can visit that hyperdrive URL and it connects directly to your instance of Beaker Browser and serves up that page. And so only the creator of the hyperdrive can change the files. Visitors can only view the drive, although they can fork the hyperdrive and make their own copy. If you want to keep something private, uh, this is a great way to do that because when you create a hyperdrive and share the link, only the people with the link are able to view the site. So if you're working on things that you'd rather not share with the world or your business, intellectual property, those kinds of things, then P2P might be a good choice. And the Beaker browser might be a good way to do that. Um, really, I guess, I'd be lying to you if I said I, I sat down and used this and went, well, here's the really practical way that I would use a peer-to-peer browser. I haven't really figured that out yet. Um, but I will say this much. I am always interested in technology that allows us to move towards a decentralized web. I'm becoming increasingly convinced that we don't want large collections of data in a centralized place. And things like the Beaker browser allows you to, or at least it allows us to begin to explore what that might look like. Um, you know, it, it, it would be concerning to me that if I have a link and I have a site, obviously there's a limited amount of traffic that my laptop or my desktop or my internet connection is going to be able to support. And so there's there's a there's a there's a limited use case to where this would be 
where this would be helpful. The other thing is, until this becomes an open standard that you know things like Firefox and Chrome support, the reality is, who's going to go download a browser just to view peer-to-peer content? So right now, it's I, I would I would classify it more in that nerd uh, experimentation phase where, hey, this is a really cool thing. You can play with it. Here's what you could do with it. Here are some potentials. But the 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 long-term advantage to me is the fact that this seems like the first step to a decentralized web. And also from Google I.O., uh, Android 12 has, quote-unquote, privacy features that they've released. Uh, and so with Android 12, you're going to get a dashboard that allows the user to see which apps are using the microphone. Or uh, let me rephrase. A dashboard that allows users to see which Google claims apps are using the microphone and camera and accessing the location. They also have an indicator light that they claim will light up in the upper right-hand corner of the screen when the camera or microphone are being used. They uh, claim that there is an option that will allow you to share approximate location rather than precise location. Uh, Cool. And then uh, there are shortcuts um, that will request that the microphone be disabled or the camera be disabled to the entire system. Again, I say claim and request because without access to the code base and without seeing how they actually do this, there would be no way to verify that. And in fact, and indeed, uh, one of the things that Snowden taught us was that all of these little devices that claim like, oh, the little light comes on when the microphone is on or when the, the camera's on, those are not necessarily reliable. They can be bypassed. And it's one of the reasons that the Pine phone went to physical hardware switches, things that you can physically toggle off and, and cut the, the, the physical connection um, to the camera, to the microphone, uh, and so on and so forth. And so, but it's good to see that, that Google is at least trying to respond to these things. If they're introducing quote unquote privacy features, um, they're trailing behind Apple and they're, they're, tr- they're trying to respond uh, but at least at least the message has been received that you don't that people are uncomfortable with the 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 level of intrusiveness that Android has uh, to our lives. And so they're trying to fix that. And finally, an update from the folks over at Pine, uh, the keyboard, the Pine keyboard that's going to attach to the Pine phone will be shipping to a few people. They have their internal review units, but there is some work to be done on the membranes. And also they have some work to finish up on the drivers. Uh, so that'll be a little bit before that's uh, a completely ready to go, uh, product. The wireless charging and Laura case will ship next month. Uh, as as well as the fingerprint case shortly after that. This is really cool. The Pine Deal. Now, this is the LoRa mode. We talked about this. You can go back and listen to uh, the previous episode where we talked about LoRa. Uh, this is going to come out in late June, and this is something I'm really excited about. So essentially what LoRa is is it allows uh, peer-to-peer group text messaging as well as peer-to-peer communication uh, for things like GPS. And they are working with a company called Femtostar, and Femtostar is open source satellite communication. So it's satellite communication done differently. The satellites are an open infrastructure. Anyone can use them. Uh, you don't have to go through any sort of official gateway. And uh, The Femtostar is flexible. It's an open net neutral network. It's built on privacy, free and open source technology. Uh, all of the hardware, all of the software, all of the access to the source code, it's all out in the open. So anybody can start playing with this. And guess what? They're, <laughs> they hang out on matrix.org. So you can join their chat room at hashtag femtostar colon matrix.org. We'll have a link for you in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com. Uh, the, I, I guess that the, the two things that stand out to me there, one is Femtostar is essentially 
they're they're doing what Starlink is doing. They're just doing it in a free and open source way. Their goals are entirely different. Starlink is trying to straight up take on broadband, whereas Femtostar is just trying to get communication from one device to the other in a privacy respecting open source way. Now, I've not read into the specs on exactly how it works, but the claim from their site is even if somebody else took over Femtostar or even if the government got involved in Femtostar, they wouldn't be able to compromise the technology because anybody can understand by looking at it that the source code is open and that it's secure by default. So more looking to be done, but it's exciting to see that Pine has chose them as a hardware partner. Hey, the music in my ears means we're out of time. We record the show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can join us live, ask questions by calling in, send in, the sh- send in your emails to live at Ask Noah Show if you can't make it. The show continues 24-7, 365 over at AskNoahShow.com, podcast.AskNoahShow.com. That's where you'll get all of the show notes, all of the articles and references that I use in the show. They're all published there. You can go and check them out. We'll see you next week, 6 p.m. Tuesday. Have a good week. <laughs>